0: There's a culture war going on in this country. We can no longer remain silent on the issues that affect us all. Decisions we make now will determine our future. But how do we engage with the culture in a way that honors Jesus? How do we rise above the noise to know what is right and what is true? It's time to bring God back into the conversation. It's time to reconnect. Here's Carmen.
1: Welcome, friends. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is The Reconnect, where we're putting God in his place, back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. But how do we do that? How do we enter into the conversations of the day as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ? How do we speak the mind of Christ on the matters of the day? Let's face it, people don't need another piece of our mind, but they do very desperately need the peace of the mind of Christ. So how can we give that to them? Well, I invite you to connect with us online. Our website is reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can like us on Facebook. Let us know what you're thinking about on Twitter. I'm at Carmen Laburge. All right, folks. I don't know about you, but last night's you know was supposed to be this incredible revelation of Donald Trump's tax returns, ended up being a big nothing. Uh, Two pages of anybody's tax returns, even two pages of my tax returns, two pages of your tax returns, wouldn't probably be very interesting. But two pages of a tax return that was probably thousands of pages long, really not interesting. Okay, so I'll just share with you what makes me stressed out about the whole, hey, finally we have two pages of an 11-year-old or 12-year-old tax return from Donald Trump, is that I have not yet done my taxes. And so the stress for me is simply personal, and I'll just put it out there for you. So, what is the News related to Donald Trump's taxes. Well, in 2005, he had an income of $150 million and he paid $38 million in taxes. That's the big news. And here's then the question. Is that news? What is news? What is breaking news? Rachel Maddow was supposedly going to offer this breaking news, this scoop of all scoops, this information to which no one else had access. Well, come to find out that wasn't true either. So, I'm kind of wondering if you're going to have a big buildup in terms of media these days about a big scoop and then somebody can actually scoop you in 140 characters on Twitter prior to your being able to get what you are uh, have suggested is this revelatory information out there on the air. Is the day of the scoop kind of dead? That's my sort of that's my sort of question of the day. And then when we think about ourselves being the people of the good news, the people who have the good news to bear into the world, you know, is there any way to get a scoop on that these days? You know, the good news is good, but the good news isn't really treated as news by a lot of people. But there are some folks out there in the world today, maybe a full 25%, a full quarter of our neighbors who we run across uh, in each and every day, who are not operating out of any kind of um, spiritual worldview. They're they are operating out of a worldview that denies the spiritual reality altogether. Well, it certainly denies any existence of any real God. So they may consider themselves somehow spiritual, but they do not see any particular way of expressing that spirituality in terms of an identifiable religion. Certainly Christianity. They don't view that as important, essential, or true. So for them you still have the opportunity to give them a scoop. You still have an opportunity to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through your own personal testimony, because that's actually what's news to people today. The news is the personal testimony, and nobody can scoop you in terms of your personal testimony about who God is um, in Jesus Christ as applied to your own life. So there you go. I'm setting you free today to go uh, share the breaking news of salvation with your neighbor. uh, And nobody can scoop you on that. So there you have it. All right. Tonight, I'm going to go hear President Trump at an event in Nashville, Tennessee. He is supposed to be talking about uh, the proposed health care plan as well as school choice. Both of those are Supposedly on his speaking agenda for this evening, but uh, you and I both know I could actually be hearing almost anything. That's part of the fun of going to hear Donald Trump speak. You you can anticipate all you want, but you might just uh, come away with something you never expected to hear. But one of the things that folks are seem to be making hay over in terms of Trump's visit to Tennessee... Is everything that he's doing related to Andrew Jackson? So Andrew Jackson, you may or may not recall, um, was the seventh president of the United States of America. He died in 1845, and uh, in Nashville, there's a there's a road called Old Hickory. It kind of wanders around the city. You can you can intersect with Old Hickory Boulevard in a number of places. Um, there's a place called the Hermitage. There's actually a, a hotel downtown called the Hermitage. But the Hermitage, in terms of Um, Andrew Jackson's home place is quite a place it's a it's quite a place to tour and see Um, and Donald Trump will be journeying to Jackson's home the hermitage uh, and he will be visiting uh, old Hickory's grave old Hickory is uh, the 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 sort of pet name for Andrew Jackson so um, Donald Trump has a portrait of Andrew Jackson in the Oval Office uh, and why is that significant well President Barack Obama actually ordered that Jackson, who was a slaveholder, be removed from the face of the $20 bill. Uh, and replaced by um, an image of a black abolitionist leader whose name is Harriet Tubman. So um, things have shifted pretty dramatically in terms of sort of the honoring of Andrew Jackson or the acknowledging of who he is. There are some folks in the Trump administration, Steve Bannon probably lead among them, who likes to liken uh, President Trump to Andrew Jackson in terms of the populist support uh, that both of these men have um, Harnessed. I won't say that either one of them created it, but they both harnessed a particular populism in their time. Uh, Jackson, unlike Trump, was born in poverty. Uh, he was um, uh, he was a person who made sort of made his own fame in his own career. He certainly did not grow up in any sort of privileged way. Um, and the, the two men probably have very little in common uh, beyond the populist support that they enjoy. So what is it um, maybe about Andrew Jackson that Donald Trump uh, wants to tap into or seeks to emulate or seeks to capitalize on? Well, if you recall, last week we had a conversation in studio with um, Michael Ware, and Michael Ware served in the Obama administration in the Faith Outreach Office. And one of the things that Michael Ware said in our conversation last week was um uh, he was acknowledging that the democrats really run what he described his words not mine an arrogant campaign and uh, this notion that we don't need the votes of religiously minded people. We don't need the votes of people who we view as religiously biased because they are evangelical or people who are religiously biased because they are Roman Catholic. We don't need those voters. That's the arrogance to which Michael Ware was pointing. And the Democrats certainly found out that they were wrong in relationship to that that particular campaign strategy. Trump, on the other hand, absolutely viewed populism as his way to the White House. So how do I tap into the angst and the anger and the frustration and the way people feel sidelined or the way people feel left out of the conversation or disenfranchised? How do you tap into that? And, And that is something that Donald Trump has been very, very effective at doing. That I would describe as Jacksonianism. I would describe the way in which Donald Trump taps into the power of populism. Now, I'm not using populism here as uh, as pejorative. I'm describing the energy that exists out there in the country among people of a variety of colors, people of a variety of... Um, financial capability, people in a variety of spheres of influence, a lot of people in America feel like they are left out somehow, some way of what the elites enjoy in terms of the dominance in the culture. So if you feel like culture is dominated by voices in the academy or voices in the media or voices in the entertainment community, if you feel it's dominated by big personalities, by celebrity voices, by people with PhDs and other, you know, fancy titles and uh, that all went to the same half a dozen schools, if you feel like that, then you're actually a part of the populist, the people whose energy Donald Trump is seeking to tap into and actually has effectively tapped into at one level or another. Here's the challenge that I think he faces just because everybody out there thinks that they are every man that thinks that they are the common man and that Donald Trump is now their voice of the common man, their voice of the every man. Here's the challenge. The common man, the every man, they don't all agree on what they want in terms of, um, finding a voice in the culture or finding a place of of greater significance and influence even in their own communities. So it's going to be very difficult, I think, from my perspective, to satisfy a populist that doesn't necessarily have any kind of uniform agenda. Uh, And so it will be interesting to see if Donald Trump can throw his arms around that vast array of wildly uh, disparate people in our country who feel disenfranchised. And make of them some kind of positive movement towards what he envisions as, uh, you know, a better future for America. Uh, and so I'm going to go tonight and see what I can hear about that, and I'll uh, I'll let you know tomorrow what I what I discover. Now, since we're talking about Tennessee, I thought I would lift up to you a lawsuit that the state of Tennessee has actually filed uh, in federal court. Um, and so the lawsuit. Again, it's the state of Tennessee suing the federal government, suing the federal government over refugees. And the grounds for this argument is the 10th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So this is a question about federalism and the rights of states, which seems an apt conversation to be having when we're talking about Andrew Jackson. Okay, so uh, the lawsuit and you can read about this in the USA Today. Joel Ebert has a uh, has published an article on this just yesterday entitled Tennessee Sues Federal Government Over Refugees. So this is the first of its kind case, and it may be that other states come alongside and join Tennessee in this lawsuit. The lawsuit argues that the federal government has unduly forced states to pay for the refugee resettlement program. The Federal Refugee Act... Uh, was designed to create a permanent procedure for the admission of refugees into the United States. The challenge is the Federal Refugee Act doesn't then pay the states um, to resettle those refugees, or at least not at a level of sufficiency uh, that, over time, these refugees require. So the lawsuit asked the court to force the federal government to stop resettling refugees in Tennessee until, and hear this, all costs... All costs associated with the settlement of refugees is incurred by the federal government. Now, I just got to tell you, that's never going to happen, right? You cannot project what the cost over a lifetime is going to be of resettling a refugee. That, that's just actually impossible to do. So, on one level, the lawsuit is asking the court to do something that ultimately. Well, the court could certainly order the federal government to stop resettling refugees in Tennessee, but it cannot do so until such a time as all costs related with resettlement are absorbed by the federal government, uh, because there's no way to actually anticipate what those would be. Now, from a Christian worldview perspective, that's not even the conversation we should be having. Okay, the conversation from a Christian worldview perspective is what What is our perspective on refugees? How are refugees different than immigrants? Um, how are refugees vetted differently than immigrants? How do refugees contribute differently um, to our culture, to our society, to our community? Um, and here in Tennessee, which happens to be where I live, refugees actually contribute pretty significantly to um, to our culture. I mean, they certainly make our culture more interesting and more diverse than it would be otherwise. Uh, but we have a huge Egyptian Coptic Christian community in Middle Tennessee and those Coptic Christians have fled the genocide that they are experiencing in Egypt and they have been provided refugee asylum here in the United States so those are refugees who with whom by the way if you're a Christian we're going to spend eternity with these people so we, we're co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven with these Coptic Egyptian Christians. And so when we start talking about whether or not they can live in our neighborhood or they can live in our country, um, hey, hey, let's just keep in mind, we're going to be living together with them in the kingdom of heaven forever. So um, I don't know about you, but now's the time to be neighborly to the people with whom you're going to spend eternity. So when we're talking... Specifically here, if what you need to do in order to get, get your mind around this refugee conversation, if what you need to do is just confine it to Christians, fine. Just confine it to Christians in your mind. Let's start there. Let's start there and confine the conversation to the resettlement of Christians from places where Christians are being boiled in tar, their kids are being crucified, and their women are being sold into sexual slavery. Want to just have that conversation about the resettlement of refugees? Because if I've got to push those emotional buttons to get this conversation going, that is what I will do. Tomorrow actually happens to be the anniversary of, um, of the date upon which the U.S. government um, defined what is happening in the Middle East to Christians um, and other religious minorities under ISIS. Tomorrow is actually the day, uh, the one-year anniversary of the genocide declaration. So it was actually on March 17th. I guess we're two days off. Um, On March 17th, Secretary of State John Kerry declared that ISIS was responsible for genocide against groups and areas under its control that include Yazidis, Christians, Shia Muslims, uh, Daesh, which is John Kerry's favorite term for uh, for ISIS. Uh, He declared Daesh to be genocidal by self-proclamation, by ideology, and by actions. Um, by what it says and by what it does. Now, that declaration came three days after the U.S. House of Representatives voted 393-0 to zero, okay, in a unanimous vote to recognize what is happening in the Middle East under ISIS as genocide. That word carries a lot of heft internationally. It carries a lot of heft at the U.N. It carries a lot of heft in terms of the responsibility that it then places on the nation um, that uses the term. So, The Genocide Coalition, which is a partnership of organizations and advocates for ISIS genocide victims, is hosting an event at the U.S. Capitol um, to mark the one year anniversary of the declaration and is releasing a joint statement that is calling on the Trump administration and Congress to actually take further steps to protect the victims of genocide. I'm a signatory on that statement. And so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this is something I believe as Christians we are going to be held accountable for in heaven. And when I stand in heaven before my Christian brothers and sisters who during my lifetime and under my watch and to my knowledge, to my knowledge, were killed at the hands of genocidal maniacs. I want to be able to say, I did everything I could think of. I appealed to my government. I offered uh, I offered refugee resettlement in my community. I got together with other Christians and I, I sent resources to provide for your need and for your care um, in the country of origin where you live. I did everything that I could think of during my lifetime to be sure that you your life did not come to the kind of end that it came to. So when we talk about refugees, when we talk about refugee resettlement, let us not be people who are speaking out of both sides of our mouths. Let us not be praying for the persecuted church around the world and then slamming closed the door here in the United States of America to the resettlement of Christians from parts of the world where they are persecuted. And then let's say to ourselves, hey, why just Christians? Why wouldn't my heart be broken for a persecuted minority of any variety who was who was dying at the hands of genocidal maniacs around the world? All right. So off my soapbox, back to the news of the day. Today is the Ides of March. The Ides of March. We're supposed to beware the Ides of March. I, I don't know. Do you even remember what happened on the Ides of March? Does anybody No. OK, so none of my if you're not classically educated, this may be going completely past you. But there was a guy named Caesar and he was a Roman emperor and he did not beware the Ides of March. And a guy with a saber under his cape came up and, eh, yeah, uh, yeah. Just uh, there's probably a word for that. But anyway, it was murder. So you should beware the Ides of March. Well, maybe you should beware March Madness. That's going on now, too. March Madness technically begins tomorrow. Um, a lot of people have a lot of kind of brackets. If you are sort of in the... Um, you know the the crowd of christians who they don't bet on anything anyway but they got like bible brackets going on now and they've got like ministry brackets of all kinds so people get involved in this even um even just to have a little bit of fun related to these kinds of things so uh so just be aware that that's going on but in many, many ways, I think the madness of March is already upon us if you sort of look around in the culture and what's going on in the world, and certainly if you take a look at what's going on in Washington. So let's visit, really briefly, health care reform. Um, so uh, first of all, on the subject of healthcare care reform, we got to start by talking about what is and what is not health care, because insurance... Insurance, having insurance is not actually the assurance of access, and insurance is not actually the assurance of health. So the care for one's health is in part one's own responsibility, but it's also this sort of collective effort that we bring to bear when somebody is hurt, injured, or ill. So there's a there's a network of people and services that come together to provide for the care of a person whose health has, is failing. Okay, so insurance, when we talk about health care reform, what we're really talking about is an economic tool. It's a lever. I'm not sure it's really anything more than that, but it is certainly that. So we got to talk about what is medically necessary and what is elective. Um, what is simply an enhancement uh, and, and, and what is actually like of medical necessity. You, you, get the, you get the idea here. Like abortion is not health care any more than breast augmentation or getting your hair replaced. Okay, so when we talk about health care, we've got to use terms that actually apply to the care of a person's health, health, not what they do or don't like about their physical shape. Planned Parenthood provides uh, what they describe as comprehensive reproductive health care. That's the way they describe what they provide. Okay, that is simply wrong. That that is not what they do. That is not who they are. That's not even what they're about. Um, Chuck, Chuck Chuck Schumer. You might recognize his name. He is a Democratic leader in the Senate. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, posted on Twitter a few days ago um, that Trump care was going to cut PPFA, that's Planned Parenthood Federation of America, PPFA funds. And listen to this, hurting millions of women who turn there for mammograms, maternity care, cancer screenings, and more. Okay, that's just a lie. It's just a lie. Um, millions of women do not turn to PPFA to Planned Parenthood for mammograms or actually any other kind of thing other than abortions. Okay, now some women do get um, what's called a clinical breast exam at Planned Parenthood. All right, so a little over 300,000 women got a clinical breast exam. That's checking for a change in the breast, but they don't get mammograms. Why not? Because Planned Parenthood doesn't do mammograms. Planned Parenthood doesn't even own any mammogram machines. Planned Parenthood is not um, authorized by the FDA uh, to even, they're not, they're not certified mammography facilities. Planned Parenthood is not even on the list anywhere of the Food and Drug Administration's uh, list, which is updated every week. So it's just a lie to say that women are getting mammograms, certainly a lie to say that millions of millions of women are getting mammograms uh, through Planned Parenthood. Just a flat out lie. So there you go. Um, Now, on the subject of Planned Parenthood, do you might recall what they uh, you might recall that the president, President Trump, actually offered to keep them funded he, he offered to continue their half a billion dollars a year in federal funding if they would just stop doing one thing. Just stop doing this one thing. Stop doing abortions, and you can keep your federal funding. And guess what they told him? Well, they refused. Why? Because they argue abortion is one of their core values. Just let that settle in when you think about what they're doing at Planned Parenthood. Um, All right, folks, we are we are running up on uh, on a break, and I don't want you to miss a quick update that I've got for you on the viral video that we referenced the other day. There's a professor in South Korea. You've you've certainly seen this video by now. Um, If you're like my family, you've watched it many times and it's hilarious. So in South Korea, there's this professor who was appearing uh, during a BBC television interview. It had us all laughing, and now there is a great follow-up where his entire family is interviewed. So I just encourage you to go, um, to go grab that um, because this family is, uh, is really a very positive picture of, what, um, of frankly, what family should be like and how a mom and a dad and two little kids are sort of making a go of it and just loving each other and recognizing how messy life can be when lived together uh, in in a small space in Korea. So, all right, The Reconnect is a listener-supported program by people like you. So I'd appreciate it if you would just take a minute during the break to visit reconnectwithcarmen.com, grab some resources, support the ministry, and then we'll be right back. I'm Carmen Laverge, and this is The Reconnect, and that's Toby Mack. We're trying to put God back in his place, back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. So, we're talking about um, the real issues of real life and the real things that we are dealing with every day in the real world. And to bring us some perspective on that, we have invited Professor Miroslav Wolf to join us again here on the Reconnect. You will remember him as the uh, professor of systematic theology and founder of the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He has served as an advisor for the White House Office of Faith Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. He's a frequent commentator on all all kinds of religious and cultural issues in popular media. Um, He has written or edited 15 books and more scholarly articles than any of us will probably ever read other than his Ph.D. students. Um, And he's the co-author of a really great book entitled Public Faith in Action, How to Think Carefully, Engage Wisely, and Vote with Integrity. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at Miroslav Volf. Dr. Volf, welcome back to The Reconnect.
2: It's great to be back with you.
1: So I feel like I should start with the question that is uh, most pressing on my personal mind, which is how long should I stand in line tonight to get into a Trump event for which I have tickets, but for which I understand the line is already forming and the event is still four hours away?
2: Wow, uh, that, that's very, that's very impressive. You know what, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave, leave that to you and, uh, (laughs) measure it to to the desire that you have to experience that event and we can, we can experience it it for various reasons.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Okay, so um, when we talked before, two of the things that we left undiscussed but burning in my mind in terms of things I wanted to talk with you about, one of those is privacy issues and privacy concerns, and the other is religious liberty. So let's start with privacy. Sure. Mm -hmm. When we – and this is a conversation I recognize we could take in a myriad of directions, but let's just focus on the intersection of privacy and security. Yeah, Um, yeah. Just, just start off that conversation for us.
2: Well, I, I think we, we have both, both of these concerns are real concerns, and we have to take uh, both of them uh, seriously, both security and, uh, uh, and privacy. But I think the violation of pri- privacy, too, are, among other things, also security issues. Uh, Remember, I come from a country, um, a former Yugoslavia, which was ruled by the communists. Uh, My father was a Pentecostal minister. Our room in which we uh, our house in which we lived was bugged, which Mm. means that we never knew uh, which of our conversations were were listened to. Uh, when I was uh, when I was conscripted to serve in the military service, uh, I was conscientious objector, but there wasn't room for any of those. Um, my room, actually, in which I was, was bugged. All the conversations that I had with fellow soldiers were uh, were uh, recorded, and then I was interrogated for for months. Um, mm. So, um, for me, that was a security privacy was a security issue, <laughs> and I think that's the case everywhere. Uh, in the entire world. So I think security isn't simply what we sacrifice privacy to, it's we become insecure, some of us, uh, or many of us, if the privacy is violated. That is a security issue itself.
1: So I'm curious to know how you, with your history and your insight into this, um, how did you respond to the latest, you know, revelations related to um, our own CIA, uh, maybe spying on the American people themselves?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm troubled about it. I, I don't know exactly uh, exactly the extent, exactly the character uh, of, of this. But I think privacy is, a, is a, a very important issue. It's a very important issue uh, in terms of our ability to act freely. Uh, but I think it's also very important uh, uh, for our ability to kind of mature and to come into public with Uh, an opinion that we have fully formed rather than kind of incohate thoughts that we formulate. You know, and I was made aware of this uh, by my my wife, who's a writer, and uh, I write too, and that never occurred to me, but it did to her. If somebody were to take drafts of what I write, I actually said everything, wrote everything on that paper, right? But if somebody were to take those drafts and publish them, I would be violated because this is not the best me. This is the me in the process of forming myself, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so kind of a character development, uh, for character development, for development of mature positions. We all need spaces in which we can breathe uh, freely. So it's both in terms of uh, our freedoms, but also in terms of our our maturity, in terms of our uh, ability to, to, to grow, uh, and I don't think there's accident that, uh, that Jesus uh, uh, in, the, in the Gospels, uh, he, uh, he says, well, if, if somebody has sinned uh, in the church, uh, go and, uh, and uh, speak to them in private. Uh, bring a, a few folks, only then expose, right? Because a, a possibility of growth is predicated on this becoming, uh, on, on our lives being in some sense uh, private and kept as such.
1: So it's interesting, uh, I think, that when we when we bring that conversation into uh, sort of the American assumption that everything should be done tr- in, with transparency, that everything in government should be done out in the open. I guess I'm thinking right now about the fact that our Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, is on a trip or soon to leave on a trip, and he's not taking the press corps with him. And the press corps is you know all up in arms because they think that you know certainly diplomacy shouldn't be done in private. It shouldn't be done in secret. It should be done out in the open. But there is a tension there. If we're going to try to have some kind of conversation that is a process and is in process, then sometimes those conversations have to happen, you know, sort of outside the view and outside of the earshot of the instantaneous judgment um, that our culture lives in now.
2: No, I I, I generally w- w- would agree with you. I, I think that uh, whether that's in economy, whether that's in in politics, there is a, there is a, a kind of there ought to be a presumption of trust, and therefore. A certain form of allowing for things to happen um, in without public, immediate public uh, public view. Um, at the same time, I think when we talked about uh, importance uh, importance of privacy as a, as a kind of freedom freedom issue, um, I I think that the powerful need scrutiny of public view more than uh, the ordinary citizens and uh, powerless. It's no accident that Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, the communist dicta- dictator uh, uh, and, and a revolutionary uh, who, uh, who established Soviet, uh, communism in Soviet and then Soviet Union, uh, he said, trust is good, but control is better, <laughs> mm. right? This is, a po- this is power speaking. And I think we need to also have a sense of differential. I, I think ordinary people in their ordinary lives need the space of freedom. I think government sometimes needs a space of, of freedom, provided the trust is present there, which I think it, in normal circumstances it ought to be. But at the same time, I think the powerful one in particular need to be held to scrutiny because they have an opportunity and they have a tendency also to misuse that power to the detriment, uh, not just of themselves or a few people around, but but of entire populations indeed the the entire world.
1: Hmm. Folks, we're talking with Dr. Miroslav Volf. He is the Henry B. Wright Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale. Um, He also directs the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. You can follow him on Twitter at Miroslav Volf. Let's transition to a conversation about religious liberty, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open this door wide as well, because I'd like you to start this conversation where you want to out of your own experience and your observations about uh, the status of religious liberty and religious liberty issues in America today. Um, so what would you say are the primary misunderstandings or concerns today related to religious liberty?
2: well I, I, what I think we need to we need to do also uh, kind of the, is a frame uh, more in the global uh, in the world proportions uh, the, the question of religious uh, religious liberty we have uh, millions literally millions of persecuted christians persecuted mm-hmm. uh, other groups as well i'm uh, a christian myself obviously uh, i'm concerned for persecution of christians and partly i'm concerned because I myself again was persecuted. Um, my liberty uh, and liberty of my my family, uh, my, my friends, has been severely severely curtailed. Uh, religious liberty, I think, is a, is a, for want to speak in terms of rights, a fundamental right, and uh, it's it's a presumption. Um, I think of it. I think of it this way: if they were not for somebody who was willing to act. Uh, despite of restrictions of religious uh, liberty, there wouldn't be Christian faith. Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ acted uh, under presumption that he's free to say what he was saying, uh, even though he, that there, there was a strong pushback. But that was the condition of possibility of there being Christian faith at all. So Christian, uh, uh, religious liberty, fundamental. Right? So I think that's, that needs to be uh, first uh, said. First um uh, and when I, when I think about persecuted Christians' lives actually being being uh, lost, uh, 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 folks being imprisoned, beaten up, uh, and so forth, I think when we look at uh, religious liberty, whether that's in Western Europe or in the United States, uh, those are relatively minor issues. Uh, right. Uh, there's, uh, certain forms of restrictions. So what happens with Christmas? Uh, what happens in other cer- certain instances? They're important and they may be signs of what might uh, what might come. But I think uh, I think we, we need to just step back and, and have a uh, have a perspective uh, perspective on this. And uh, I think second thing I, I would say is uh, we live in a pluralistic society. There is no going back. Um, I know that a lot of people uh, still dream about Christian America. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm not sure that it would be good if it happened. Uh, I think Christians are better, we Christians are better when we are in minority situations. I think we're better when we are in pluralistic situations than when we try to impose uh, ourselves uh, on, on, on the entire societies. That has been our history and has been good. Has been, uh, I think it has given us secularization, in my judgment. Yeah. And so, uh, and so, b- because people respond to to, to the kind of power imposing itself upon them, and I think if I'm reading American situation rightly, just in recent years, it's it's kind of uh, acting on international scene in the name of religion that has made a lot of people. Uh, uneasy about uh, Christian faith. I think acting also uh, in in a in a in a uh, kind of coercive way um, in the name of faith uh, in this country makes people makes people uneasy. And I think what we need to do is figure out ways in which we can be publicly active. Engage, articulate positions that we that we uh, think are ethically, morally responsible, without being coercive. At the same time, I think other people need to learn too. It's not just the Christian learning that needs to happen; others too. But but I think we can we can start.
1: Oh, I like that that, that the way that you walked that off. Um, that we need to be uh, publicly active and engage without being coercive, because I do think that um, both of those are are important. And you're right; they're they're important for everyone in a pluralistic culture yeah. not just the christians who may be perceived by some um to enjoy some some privilege of history so when you use the term um pluralistic culture um before before i let you go i want you to define that for our audience because i think that among christians there's a misunderstanding about what the classical definition of pluralism is and we have come to think that over time that it just means that any religion is okay and any way is okay and that's really relativism so when you say pluralistic culture what do you mean
2: well, I, I mean, I mean what, what one can say, describe basically as a de facto pluralism. In this country, in many other countries, people of different deep convictions live together under the common roof. That's what I call the pluralistic situation. Now, <clears throat> each of these uh, groups uh, and individuals, they think that their way is right way. They think that their way, we think that our way is the true way. So we live in a situation where there are multiple people, each of whom thinks that their way is the true way. This is pluralism. I don't mean by pluralism, relativism, everything's okay. You know, I mean, actually, a rather different plurality of positions, each of them contends for the public space. I
1: love that. We're going to we're going to I'm going to put that on some sort of a sign and stick it on the wall.
2: That sounds, that sounds right. Uh, I don't even need credit to be credited. <laughs> uh, Mirosol,
1: thank you so much for being with us today. Um, having conversations with you, I think, is it's so helpful to deepen the thinking um, of, of all of us, to deepen our thinking on these issues. I think we have a tendency to, uh, to live in the social media climate of 140 characters or what can be grabbed on a video in the middle of the street, and we need to be doing deep thinking um, about these issues, and you help us do that. So thank you uh, for being with us today and for the work that you continue to do to help us be equipped to be articulate uh, and engaged in the public conversation as thinking Christians.
2: Thank you very much. I love having me being on your show.
1: Well, we'll have you back again. Thanks a lot. All right, friends, it's time to go below the fold. It's the time in the show where we like to lift up stories and make connections that are designed to help you engage in conversations with other people. That. Um Well, they may not start off as conversations about God, but you and I both know that there's nothing, there's nothing in all the world, there's nothing in heaven or on earth about which God doesn't care. Uh, There's no person about whom God isn't concerned, and so there's no subject matter uh, about which God doesn't have an opinion. The question is, do we see the hook or the link or the way to get God back into those conversations? So there are some days when... um, you know, frankly, the rubber meets the road so clearly that I just have to bring you a story from my own interactions with other people and share it with you, um, hopefully, as a, um, as a window into the way one person brings God back into the conversation or helps others bring God back into the conversation. So, um, uh, you know, children are at the they put us at the intersections of a lot of other people's lives so i may not be engaged in all of the ways in all of the places that all of the parents of all of the kids with whom my kids interact like i'm not in all of those spaces but because my kids are interacting with those kids and i end up interacting with those parents so this is a story related to that yesterday i pick up the kids um we're working on how to get one person from drama rehearsal to a birthday party this coming friday night while keeping a commitment to the other child to go to the co-op and pick up chickens. I know, that's a whole other story. So in this conversation, I learn from another mom that she's actually not here in town and not available for the Friday night birthday party pickup thing. She's in New York, and she halts in her speech when she says that. And she goes on to say that um, uh, her sister-in-law suddenly died. And then she goes on to say that this is a woman, uh, the sister-in-law just had a baby three days prior. So we're talking about um, a very sudden crisis situation. Now, sudden death, particularly of an affluent young mother of three, just days after giving birth in the United States of America, is frankly, for me, kind of hard to imagine. So the funeral is going to be Saturday. The infant comes home for the first time today. And there's a young dad who's not only a new widower, but who now faces the challenge of raising a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn on his own in Brooklyn, New York. The layers of sadness to this story are many. In recounting the story um, over dinner, uh, my 13-year-old said across the table to my husband, and Daddy, that's not even the saddest part of the story. And I wondered to myself, because she overheard this conversation that I had with this mom, uh, who is the sister of this man in New York. And um, this 13-year-old says, Daddy, that's not even the saddest part of the story. And I wondered, well, what does she think the saddest part of the story is? And it had been the revelation that this woman who died three days after giving birth was also an atheist. To her, that's the saddest part of the story, Now, that's a truth that's hard to imagine. Um, She said in her own adolescent way, Daddy, she didn't believe in God, and so this is a family, she said, grieving without hope. Now, that's a verse that God has knit in her heart from the pages of his own word. Because she knows that we as Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope, because we have a hope. His name is Jesus, and he's the anchor He's the anchor of our hope, and he holds fast, no matter what the raging storms of life include. But a grief without hope, she knows that would be a dark place to be. That would be a sadness that's unreconcilable. So our friend who is there on the scene is um, the sister of the now-widowed dad. She is a Christian. And in my conversation with her, she was expressing the depth of sadness, the challenge of knowing in her own life God's goodness, the challenge of knowing that um, there's just a lot of stuff that happens that we don't understand, and a, and, and a deep sadness that, uh, that comes upon us in this life from a myriad of directions, but that we as Christians can deal with because we have Jesus. And she's feeling like, in this particular environment where she finds herself, that she can't really share that hope. Because her sister-in-law died without that hope, and her brother doesn't have it either. So I simply said, Raquel, you can own your own faith. You have permission to own your own faith. You can say that although you don't understand, you trust God. You can say that you trust God to be God. To hold all of this and deal with all of this in ways that are beyond our ability to comprehend, you can say that. I'm not sure I've ever been so thanked so many times, so genuinely, nor so, so profusely in a phone conversation. It was as if simply giving her permission to own her own faith in a very pluralistic environment was really all she needed to find her feet Uh, in that situation. Simply the permission to own her own faith came as welcome relief. Now, friends, sometimes that's all we have to do. Just give other people permission to express their faith publicly. Now, I want us to be praying today for families like this family in Brooklyn. I want us to be praying today for this dad and these kids and the circles of people around them I want us to be praying for Raquel, who is right there in the middle of it, doing her very best to love her brother and love her three little nephews and celebrate the birth of this new person in the world, even though his mother lost her life in his birth. I want to pray that Raquel would be the shining light of redemption and grace in that environment, especially today. When that new baby comes home from the hospital to meet his big brothers, who are not yet old enough to understand all that is going on. Friends, our kids are very much on the forefront of the conversations that God needs to be in. And so I just want to share with you some concerns from my fifth grade Sunday school class, a class that I teach each week. And each week they raise their prayer concerns with one another, and then we pray together. There's two kids whose dads need jobs, and there's another who's fearful that his dad may lose his job. There's a child whose friend's mom just died of pancreatic cancer. There were prayers for an older sibling and an extended family member who are living in the far-off land of drug addiction. Prayers for friends whose parents are divorcing. And then there were prayers for kids who live in the places that our church listens in the bulletin every week. This week, prayers for the kids in Yemen, where there's only a few thousand Christians in a population of 26 million. The kids in my class are 11 and 12 years old, and they are people of great hope, a hope anchored in Jesus Christ. And they're living the gospel every day. All right, friends, that's all we got time for today. This is The Reconnect, and I'm Carmen Laburge. You can connect with me online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. Sign up for the podcast, donate to the ministry, and share today's show with someone else. Have a great day, and God bless.
0: The Reconnect is brought to you by the Presbyterian Lay Committee. To continue the conversation and become part of the Reconnect community, visit ReconnectWithCarmen.com.